0: from a recent review in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, the acclaimed biographer Walter Starr has given us definitive biographies of William H. Seward and Edwin Stanton, two of the ablest and most influential members of President Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. Now Mr. Starr has followed his earlier works with an eloquently written, impeccably researched, and immensely moving biography of the third cabinet standout, Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase on his new biography, Historian Walter Starr, Uncommon Knowledge, Now. (music) Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Historian Walter Starr graduated from Stanford University in 1979 and from Harvard Law School in 1982. He practiced law in Washington and Hong Kong returned to Washington from Hong Kong to take up a position at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is where Walter and I became friends, full disclosure, and then returned to Hong Kong to practice securities law with Fidelity Investments. In other words, he had a remunerative, prestigious, international legal career. And then Walter Starr gave it all up to write history. Walter has now written the definitive biographies of John Jay, published in 2005, William Seward, published in 2012, Edwin Stanton, published in 2017, and Salmon P. Chase, published this very spring. Walter, welcome back to Dartmouth College, the library of which you have used many times.
1: It is great to be back in this library. I will confess I've never been in this wonderful room before, but it's great to be in this room.
0: Let's start with a man's name. You note in the book that he himself called his name Fishy. Salmon P. Chase. Salmon, of course, is an Old Testament name. It's in the genealogy leading to the birth of Jesus in Matthew. But how did he get stuck with it?
1: Um, As he put it in one of the many letters in which he complained about this name, he was sort of a monument to an uncle who died not long before his birth. His uncle was Salmon Chase. His uncle had been a prominent lawyer in Portland, Maine, and so he got Salmon Portland Chase, um, which he toyed with changing to something, you know, more normal. And almost all of the letters that he signed, other than family letters, he would sign S.P. Chase. He would. It, oh, really? Yeah. So, if, you, if someone offers you a purported Chase letter signed Salmon P. Chase, it's, a it's probably a fake. Uh-huh.
0: So, why does it seem fitting, why is it fitting for us to be talking about Salmon P. Chase here at Dartmouth College?
1: Well, uh, Chase's connection with Dartmouth in some senses goes back before his own birth uh, in 1808 because four of his uncles uh, were graduates and by the time of his birth were already, you know, sort of achieving prominence. One of his uncles, uh, Philander Chase, um, becomes the first Episcopal Bishop of Ohio. so I think it was probably kind of faded that if Chase went to college, he would come here to Dartmouth.
0: Um, all right, now, we have here a book in, that is in some ways like the life itself, front-loaded. You yourself write that Chase made his most important contribution as an anti-slavery lawyer and leader. He became treasury of the Sec- treasurer, I beg your pardon, secretary of the treasury and Chief Justice of the United States with Abraham Lincoln. We will, of course, come to that. But you argue in the book, I hadn't realized this, how tremendously important he was as an anti-slavery figure. A couple of passages from your book. Here's young Salmon Chase in the late 1820s. He graduates from this institution in 1826, so he's a young man. He's living in Washington with his legal mentor, the former Attorney General, William Wirt. Actually, current Attorney General. Current, he's he's current attorney, thank you very much. This is Salmon Chase himself, quote, little cause exists for that sickly sympathy which many at the North feel or affect to feel with the fancied suffering of the slave. The master has a far more just claim upon our commiseration, for he lives in continual apprehension of an insurrection, close quote. He has totally assimilated the view of the Southern slaveholder in his late 20s. Now here he is in a private letter not quite two decades later. Slaves seem to be cut off from the sympathies of mankind. Our pulpits resound with the dangers of unbelief, the wants of the heathen. But alas, who cares, or caring, dares to speak of the multitudes perishing in our very midst. Which is as eloquent a statement on behalf of the dignity of slaves and all humans as exists in American history, correct? Yes. How do we go from A to B?
1: It's a complicated kind of conversion process. That's that's the term I use. Which begins in the courtroom. um, Begins with him representing um, the the housekeeper, the half-white, half-black housekeeper of a friend, uh, Matilda, um, who's accused of being a
0: fugitive slave. Um, He's now in Cincinnati, Cincinnati. Cincinnati. so he oh, leaves right. New Hampshire.
1: Leaves There's, leaves Washington. He, he goes to Cincinnati to start his legal career. He says that he'd rather be first in Cincinnati quickly rather than waiting 20 or 30 years for
0: success. C- Cincinnati w- in the uh, first third of the 19th, first half of the 19th century is still more or less a frontier town.
1: Oh, a boom town. Yes. All right. Yeah, it,
0: Ten population numbers, some tens of thousands, is I recall. All yeah. right. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Um, so in, in the Matilda case, um, he stands up in court, arguing for this woman's freedom. Um, among other things, he challenges the constitutionality of the fugitive slave law, uh, at which the, the opposing counsel you know, rises to his feet and says, what, are we gonna talk about the constitutionality of the fugitive slave law, to which Chase comes back with immediate heat and says, yes, because if it's not constitutional, there's no basis for holding this woman in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, he loses the case, but he publishes his arguments in a pamphlet, which then becomes kind of a template. Um, so it starts in court, but it takes a while before he kind of leaves his promising political career as a Whig and says, you know, no thank you. Tell us
0: oh, some Whig. feel, give us two sentences on what the Whig Party stood for.
1: Yeah, the Whig Party stood for what we would call. Um, uh, infrastructure, you know, uh, federal spending on roads and railroads, cana- roads, canals, canals. Uh, it stood for a national bank. Uh, it stood um, for it, it largely, you know, a more unified national government. Whereas the Democrats, the opponents, both north and south, were much more states' rights. Um, you know, infrastructure is okay, but it has to be funded locally rather than by the federal government. All right. So that's. You know, a very brief summary of the two main parties, and he leaves one of those two parties to join a party that is a handful of eccentrics, you know. Uh, in the 1840 election, they get 6,000 votes nationwide. So you can, you know,
0: and he- This far from being a crank.
1: This far from being a crank, correct. Um, and. When he joins that party in 1841, he immediately sets out to kind of change it and make it a political power.
0: And that party is called? The Liberty Eventually.
1: Party, initially. all right, And then the Free Soil Party, of which he's the founding father. And then the Republican Party, of which he is a founding father, at least, if not the founding father. All right.
0: I'm quoting your book again, Salmon P. Chase. Oh, this, I just got to this and stopped because it puzzle it's a puzzling formulation. Although Chase was often called an abolitionist, and although he had many friends among the abolitionists, he said consistently he was not an abolitionist, but merely an anti slavery man. All right. So we have the abolitionists are centered in Boston, I think it's generally fair to say they are uh, if there's a religious correlation, they're Puritan, they're Calvinist, they're precisely the religious strain in which he's raised up here in the Upper Valley of New Hampshire. What distinction is he drawing between the abolitionists and himself? Um, well, the abolitionists were also definitely viewed
1: as cranks and eccentrics. Mm-hmm. And, and um, uh, one of them, William Lloyd Garrison, famously on the at a Fourth of July rally, uh, burned a copy of the Constitution. And Chase was politically astute enough even as a young man to realize we're not going to get far in America if we try to build a political party by burning the Constitution. Um, And so he said, look, we're going to move away to the extent we can from abolition and we're going to have a more practical political program, uh, which he characterized in different ways. But one way he said it was we're going to divorce the federal government from slavery. We'll allow the slave states to have slavery as a state institution, but we're going to try to get the federal government out of the slavery business by, for example, abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia, preventing the creation of new slave territories in the West.
0: All right. So, we'll come, we'll come, of course, we'll come to Lincoln in a moment, but so, let's say to ourselves, I mean, there's something a little unsatisfying about this step-by-step approach to us today, oh! but then you read your book and you say to yourself, wait a moment. They had to live with this institution. It was all around them, and the practical problem, here's one option, garrison. Tear down the country, rip up the Constitution, start it all over, well, that's not gonna work. We have to find steps, and it's just fascinating to watch Chase and then Lincoln maneuver and strengthen their positions and find out what works and what doesn't. Yes it's um it's a portrait of actual human beings maneuvering in reality surrounding reality
1: right and and making judgments about how much can be accomplished in you know the relatively near term what are the kind of the easiest initial targets um, you know, the Constitution gives Congress kind of complete control over the District of Columbia. You know, it's a relatively small place. Couldn't we in some way right. at least get rid of, you know, at the time, you know, this is real estate that both you and I know, uh, roughly where the Library of Congress stands today, there was a slave market. Imagine looking out of that. the Capitol and seeing human unit. beings being bought and sold.
0: Mm-hmm. It is, you've already touched on this. It's impossible to think of Chase. You can feel it almost in every line that he writes, and you quote his correspondence a lot. He's a lawyer. Yes. He's acting within the law. He wants to act lawfully. Where necessary, he wants to change the law, but he's always engaged in close, realistic reasoning rooted in, well, who was it? Is it Holmes? Who is it who said that the life of the law is not logic, the life of the law is experience? Holmes. All right, Holmes. It is Holmes. All right. So, the question is, how good a lawyer is he? How, what difference does it make? You've mentioned one case where he defended a fugitive slave. We've got uh, Chase's record, the case of Matilda, 1837, he loses it. John Van Zandt, 1843, he loses Mm -hmm. it. Samuel Watson, 1845, he loses it. He loses, I I think, only all but one of these Uh, cases. these fugitive slave cases. So what? good is it doing? What difference do, do these cases make? Well, if we just digress for a moment to say, this
1: isn't his whole legal practice. He right. also is a banking lawyer and a general commercial lawyer, and he's a pretty good one. I mean, people hire him to represent them in the United States Supreme Court, and that doesn't happen unless you're a pretty good lawyer. Right. Um, these cases are about a little bit like dissents in the Supreme Court today. These are kind of putting down a marker which maybe someday in five years will begin to become a, min- a respectable minority opinion and maybe someday will become a majority opinion. Um, and th- there's, for him, the politics and the law are always very closely together. And so... As for Lincoln. As for Lincoln. And, um, but, but Chase, as you mentioned just a little while ago, is much earlier involved in anti-slavery than Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln is very quiet about slavery in the
0: forties and in, into the early eighteen fifties. Well, uh, we'll come up to Lincoln in just a moment. Can you? He does become a hero to one group of people. Tell us the story of the uh, the, the silver, silver pitcher, pitcher. The silver pitcher. Um,
1: so after one of these unsuccessful uh, fugitive slave cases, the black community of Cincinnati wants to thank him for his work both in the cases that we know about, and I think in a lot of cases that we don't even know about, you know, just mm. helping, you know, landlord-tenant
0: issues for, for blacks in the community. And so, they created... By the way, I'm sorry, but he had a lot of face-to-face contact with African-Americans at, at a level that I, I'm going to guess would have been unusual for a white man of standing, of means. Yes. Is that not true? Oh, yes, absolutely. In, in other words, this is not just abstraction. He, he, he believes he treats these people as human beings, as fellow citizens. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's not completely without racial prejudices,
1: but he is for, as you say, for a white man of standing, um, much more often with and working for blacks than you know almost anyone else in Cincinnati. And that's why the black community of Cincinnati creates this beautiful little silver picture. It's now in a museum in Cincinnati. Um, and they present it to him at a ceremony at a black church. Um, a black barber um, gives a, a little speech thanking him on behalf of the black community, and then Chase gives a little speech of, of, uh, of his own um, uh, in which he, among other things, says that he um, wants Ohio to repeal the provision of the state constitution that prohibits blacks from voting and that he favors what we would call integrated schools, black black and white children attending school together. Uh, And he prints this as a pamphlet um, and it then becomes a tool for his political opponents you know, in, in, in every subsequent campaign that he runs. This pamphlet is quoted against him. You know, don't vote for Chase. He even believes, I won't use the word, that that black and white children should go to school
0: together. Mm. He's he's that far out. So again, this is something we'll come to, because he's accused again and again and again, particularly when he's a member of Lincoln's cabinet, of being overambitious, of permitting ambition to dominate his thinking and behavior. And yet, early in the career, he's taking one political risk after another. Yes. There's nothing quiet about this. He's not holding back.
1: And and I think that it's a very peculiar kind of ambition when you take positions like these that are so unpopular, and you know they're unpopular, and you put them in print in a way that they're going to be quoted against you for the rest of your career. Mm
0: -hmm. Chase serves a term in the Senate representing Ohio. Two big efforts while he's in the Senate to settle slavery. Get it done. Right. The compromise of 1850 admits California as a free state, but for the southerners, it strengthens the fugitive slave law. Chase speaks in 1851. Every man who has an eye to see or an ear to hear knows that the question is not settled. It is more unsettled than ever, Close quote. Then comes the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which opens the states of kansas and nebraska to slavery by popular vote and so now the we've tried saying this state comes in free this no just leave it to the people who settled those states
1: well and it's actually a bigger territory than that because it's called the kansas nebraska act but but we're talking about essentially everything kind of kansas nebraska and then north and west to the Canadian border and the Rocky Mountains. So it, it reaches huge. all the way to Montana. It's a huge, huge tract of
0: territory. And um, Chase calls this a criminal betrayal of precious rights. Two big efforts to settle the slavery question, and he's on the wrong, I side. he's part. on the losing, side. On the losing <laughs> side of each. How do those defeats affect his thinking? How do they affect his political career?
1: Um, Well, how to put it? His thinking
0: about these issues
1: remains the same as he writes after the Compromise of 1850 to his friend, "Right is right, and it will triumph in the end." Um, And in terms of his political career, you could argue that in a way, these defeats make his career because, particularly in the 1854 debate Mm -hmm. about Kansas, Nebraska, he's the leader. You know, uh, up against uh, Senator Stephen Douglas. Um, and so he becomes more prominent and when northern outrage over the Kansas-Nebraska Act leads to kind of a, a total reshuffle of the political parties and the Republican Party emerges, he's, you know, right there on ground zero of the formation of the Republican Party.
0: Okay. So let's get, come to that now. He's elected governor of Ohio in 1856. Five. 1855. He takes office and he... You know, talking to a historian, it's really how you wrote 600 pages and got all the details right when I can't... Okay. 1855 he's elected, takes office in 1856. He does so as a Republican. Correct. 1856 is the first year, I'm, unless you're going to correct me on this, but it's the first year Republicans field candidates under the Republican banner. Banner. Right. Okay. Yeah. And So the first question is about the party itself. Stephen O. Douglas, who's later Lincoln's great nemesis, Senator Douglas of Illinois, says, no sane man can close his eyes to the fact that this great northern party, the new party, the Republican party, which is being organized on sectional issues, contemplates servile insurrection, civil war, and disunion, close quote. Was he correct? Intemperate. But was he correct? Was he correct?
1: Well, in a sense, on, on sectional issues, certainly there were no southerners who were lining up to join the Republican party. So in the in sense of saying that this was a party that was only going to find adherence in the north, yes, he was correct. Um, but the, the, the remainder of the charge, particularly if Chase were here, he would take deep umbrage <laughs> Um, and saying, no, 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 um, we, we do not, contem- no man loves the union more than I do and the republicans do not contemplate disunion. Um, I mean, What Douglas is saying, though, in a sense is right because when the republicans, I know I'm getting a bit ahead of this. No, story, no, go ahead. But in 1860, when a republican president is elected, well, then we do have disunion. Southern states secede. And we do have a civil war starting in 1861, we don't have, what. when they say servile war, they mean sort of slaves rising up and slitting the throats of masters in the night. And by and large, that did not happen in the Civil War. They're thinking back to what happened in the Haitian Revolution.
0: I see, okay.
1: So, but many people, including Chase, thought that if there was servile war, that would be, that that, that would happen.
0: That it, the moment would come.
1: That the moment would come when, when you know, you know, uh, you know, white white women would would wake up to find their children um, in in pieces.
0: When does it first cross Chase's mind? Do you suppose that war is more likely than not? I'm getting a little. I want to go back to his time as governor as well, but that's an important question.
1: Um, I think that that he honestly thought until. He started to see South Carolina and the other states secede in the secession. So right
0: through the, through the election of 1860, he thinks maybe we can hold this all together. Uh,
1: and, and gives many speeches in which he says that, and he's, he's spent a certain amount of time already in the South, particularly Kentucky and Tennessee, and he thinks that the love of union is far stronger than this this secession sentiment. So he thinks that all this secession talk, which is going on through the late 1850s and intensifies During the 1860 election, he thinks it's just talk. And that 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 he thinks that with the possible exception of South Carolina, that none of the southern states will actually go through with secession after the election of a Republican.
0: All right. Back to Chase as governor, can you it's just an amazing if the man lived such an eventful life that with almost anybody else, you'd say, All right, let's spend a good long time talking about what he did as governor. No, Chase, there's too much else to get to, but give, give us a sentence or two on what, what he accomplished as governor, what the, the importance of his time as governor, to his career, to the cause.
1: Yeah. Well, he uses the platform of being governor, I mean, governors got more press attention in those days than they do now, to mm-hmm. continue to press the anti-slavery cause. By this point, as he predicted, Kansas is in flames. And so he gives many speeches as governor about the situation in Kansas, particularly blaming the Democratic Buchanan administration. Um, But he also presses on other issues, so notably sitting here at Dartmouth, education. Um, He talks about how it's the most important thing that the state does, and he makes time to attend college commencements even finds time, I don't know how, as governor, to, to prepare and deliver a learned lecture on Galileo. I mean, he's a really an accomplished intellectual man.
0: All right. Let's take a moment now. We're, going, we're chasing the Senate, Chase's governor. Lincoln's about to get elected. Right. Everything's going to change. But let's pause just for a moment to compare these two men Chase and Lincoln
1: At, in sort of 1860, the presidential year.
0: Right. Uh, about l- l- let me set it up by quoting to you from your book. Oh, in 1858, two years before Lincoln's election, Chase was one of the few out-of-state leaders—that is, leaders from outside Illinois—who supported Lincoln in Lincoln's losing Senate race against Stephen O. Douglas, speaking in Chicago and elsewhere in that memorable campaign. But. Even though Chase and Lincoln were now in the same party, the Republican party, they did not yet agree on black rights. This is 1858, two years before Lincoln is elected. Chase would never have said, as Lincoln did in 1858, that he was not, quote, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races, close quote. And Chase would never have said that he was not, quote, in favor of making voters or jurors of negroes nor of qualifying them to hold office nor in to intermarry with white people close quote chases the man with a record of defending fugitive slaves chases the man who believes but really believes in racial equality but in 1860 the republican party gives lincoln the nomination what is going on is Lincoln always on the side of black rights but he's being much more cautious politically thinking Chase could never could never succeed what is going on here and why does the G- the Republican Party nominate Lincoln when Chase is the is the leader of the cause at this stage no i i think that
1: Lincoln's 1858 statement of opposition to black rights, I I don't think he was just saying that because he was speaking in the southern part of the state. I think that was really where he was at that point. He, a little bit later in that quote, he says, look, there are two races and I'm white and so I favor whites being on top. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but but that's... um, uh, but. In order to win the presidency in 1860, the Republicans are not going to get any votes in the south. So they basically have to run the table in the north. Um, And that means carrying what we would call some swing states, Um, Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, All of those states are very close. Um, And particularly in the southern bits of those states, you're just not going to get votes if you can be... You know, Chase's pamphlet, the Silver Picture pamphlet, can be quoted
0: against you. In Indiana to this day, you can hear a southern accent sent down in the southern part of the state. Right. Um, so, by nominating
1: Lincoln, who has much less of a record, after all, he's only served one two-year term in Congress at this point. Uh, he's given some strong speeches against extending slavery into the west, but he's, he, on, on black rights he's really a white rights man you might say at this point. Right. So, right. so it's not the first or the last time in our history that a party has opted for somebody who's more of a clean slate rather than somebody who has a lot of baggage.
0: All right. The election takes place, Lincoln wins, and you write this. Lincoln could never have become president. Again, we'll come to the presidency, we'll come to the Civil War, but I'm talking about that election. Lincoln could never have become president without the vital work that Chase had done in the preceding decades. Yeah. Political work? Largely, the politi- party,
1: Building the parties. I For mean, the legal work, as I said, these are kind of two sides of the same coin, but of the two, the political work is by far the most important you know it might have taken another without chase it might have taken another five years before the republican party got strong enough i mean lincoln just so
0: you're going to make the case you insist on the case no salmon p chase no president abraham lincoln
1: or at least no president abraham lincoln in 1860. Yeah. all right
0: all right now he's elected lincoln's elected he takes office in march we get secessions. The firing on Fort Sumter, the war begins on... Roughly a year,
1: uh, we're almost on the anniversary, the the middle of April.
0: All right. Lincoln nominates Chase to the Treasury Department. Yeah. And you write, by modern standards, Chase did not have the right resume (laughs) to be Secretary of the Treasury, for he had not headed a major financial institution, close quote. Why did Lincoln nominate him to that job?
1: They had much more of a sense in those days of the hierarchy of the cabinet. Mm. I don't think many, many, many even relatively political folks can list the hierarchy of the cabinet. You know, the Secretary of State is position number one, Secretary of the Treasury is position number two. But in those days, they did. And there was a bit of a custom of kind of naming people in, how to put it, in order of party seniority to these positions. So for example, Why does Daniel Webster serve as Secretary of State? Well, he was, we're here at Dartmouth, so we have to throw in Daniel Webster at least once.
0: Yes, of course. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Thank you on behalf of all Dartmouth alumni. Uh,
1: Because he's the leading Whig at the time that he's named Secretary of State. Um, And so Seward is the leading Republican, so he gets the top slot, and Chase is kind of the number two Republican, so he gets the number two slot, Secretary of the Treasury. In those days, financial expertise was really not much of a prerequisite, although he had, I argue, more financial expertise than most of his predecessors in the treasury.
0: I see. Salmon P. Chase again, your book. Even the most experienced financier would have hesitated to take over the treasury in March 1861, for the federal finances were in terrible shape. Predecessor John Adams Dix reported to Congress in February 1861 that he had only about $500,000 in the Treasury and that he expected bills of $10 million in the next few weeks. I just asked why Lincoln nominated him. Why did Chase
1: take the job? Oh, he, he really didn't want to take the job. Um, he, he As I mentioned earlier, he had just been elected to the Senate, and he thought it would be just so much more pleasant to be in the U.S. Senate, which would work on those in those days about six months a year, and then you could go out and give speeches and take vacations uh, rather than, you know, running a bankrupt Treasury Department. And indeed, um, the, there are some sources that suggest that, that Lincoln nominated him, he was immediately confirmed, And upon learning of this, he went to the White House and said to Lincoln, sorry, I don't want to do this. To which Lincoln said, sorry, it's going to look really, really bad if, you know, you resign immediately upon my nomination and and your confirmation and, you know, the Treasury is bankrupt. I need your help. And maybe a civil war is coming. I need your help. And, And he, you know, like. All of these people had a very strong sense of duty, and he saw that his duty was to, to take so, the job.
0: So, right up until 1860, he's a legislator, he spent six years in the Senate, he spends four years as governor, he runs for the Senate again, ends up at Treasury instead. But in this whole period, you th- this is a man who's rhetorical, he's a lawyer. He's a talker. He's a very high-level talker and thinker, but his medium is words. Not numbers. Not numbers. And also not, really not organization. He's not building enterprises, yeah, which I'm, there were people building enterprises in yeah, those
1: days. I, I mean, being governor in the 19th century, I mean, you didn't have a huge bureaucracy underneath right. you. Right.
0: right. So, yes. So here's what he does during the Civil War. I beg your pardon. While he's at Treasury during the Civil War, He finances the Civil War. He finds a way to increase federal outlays from 80 million a year to 1.3 billion. He gives us a national bank. This is a contentious issue for decades in American history. He does it, and in a way that sticks, and he invents a national currency. These are, he transforms modern American financial life and the role of government in the life of the nation and i see nothing in the in his life before that moment to suppose that he would be capable of these i don't substantive well, organizational revolutionary uh, you know. Revo- yes yes um, so how does he pull all of this off um well the, the you know the financing
1: there's a certain amount of improvisation and there's right. there's some mistakes um for sure um uh but the key moment is when uh, he and a friend uh, Jay Cook uh, hit upon the idea of, 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 of sort of selling government bonds in small denominations to the, the people, um, what we would call a war bond campaign. And Cook is a master of publicity. And, and people line up around the block to buy government war bonds in small denominations. Um, and that brings in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the latter phases of the Civil War.
0: Um, the... So that, that in, I mean, that to me is, is in itself as fast. In Europe, up to this point, whenever a czar or a king needs to finance a war, there's a small group of extremely wealthy individuals and bankers to whom they go. And Chase solves his problem by going to the people. It's democratic in its nature.
1: Right. There was actually one European precedent. About mm, three years before this, Napoleon III had gone to the French people in a similar way. And so they did, and and among Chase's papers are like French descriptions of this Uh, in French. He could read French quite well.
0: Uh, and, so the legal mind, he immediately searches for precedence. How do we do this? Right.
1: You Immediately, right. One of my legal mentors said that the beginning of all good legal analysis is plagiarism. Ah. Uh, right.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, quickly take us through. The currency and uh, the banks? Yeah, I, 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 there's so much of this man, but I want to at least touch on, on, yeah. I want to touch on all of it, really. So what's the importance of a national bank? Banks, and plural. I mean, banks, excuse me, Yeah. of the banks, the national bank system, and. We take the dollar so completely for granted, make us understand what it looked like before the dollar, and then tell us how he he introduced it. All right,
1: so so taking the banks first, we'd had this a couple of kind of single controversial banks in American history. You know, Andrew Jackson famously kind of destroys the second bank of the United States. But um, before that, you had institutions chartered by states, very lightly regulated, often, You know, just going bankrupt without much warning. Um, And he wanted to have, you know, national banks that had, you know, greater spread and greater depth um, and kind of pushes through a reluctant Congress, the the legislation, the the National Banking Act, which is the... um, you know, the predecessor of all the national banks we know. Um, and
0: my impression is Lincoln is, Lincoln, fine, you go do it. Lincoln actually isn't terribly interested in this. Correct. All right. It,
1: yes. That, that's
0: a very, This is a chase initiative.
1: This is a chase initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, supported by some bankers, but as you can imagine, some bankers who run large state chartered banks are opposed to this. So mm-hmm. it, it's not easy getting it through. The currency before the Civil War, I mean, people talked about dollars and and transactions were done in dollars, but if you had a large transaction, you would be presenting a note issued by one of these state banks, and there were more than 1,000 of them, and they had more than 10,000 different types of notes. So if I, you know, flew in from California and tried to present a note from the you know, the first bank of Los Angeles here in New Hampshire, someone would say, well, where's Los Angeles? You know, does that bank even exist? Is that bank solvent? You know, and if I could persuade them to take the note, maybe it would be at a 50% discount, but maybe the bank doesn't even exist, and so I've worked a con on the shopkeeper. Mm. The the note is worth nothing. It was the golden age of counterfeiters because, and, and Chase, had been thinking about this issue for a long time. I found some very early when a young man wrote wrote editorials about currency and saying, look, the purpose of currency is to provide a stable way in which
0: ordinary folks can buy ordinary stuff. Chase and ambition. Uh, We We have to come to this now. Yes. In many accounts, he comes down to us as a conniver. Yes. There he is, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, seeking the the nomination nomination in 1864 to run against Lincoln in 1864. You quote him, you have here, he writes to his son-in-law, quote, I think that a man of different qualities from those of the president, Lincoln, will be needed for the next four years. And around the same time, he writes to a friend, again, you quote this, I claim no right to anyone's political support, but a very large number of citizens, <laughs> most of them strangers to me personally, manifest a strong disposition to require my services in another and higher sphere of duty than any I have heretofore fulfilled. I mean, the pomposity of that alone really puts you on guard. This man, there's a little self-delusion, and there's real, am- so what does he think he's doing? I think he actually does think
1: that that the next four years. I mean, by this point, you can sort of see that the union is going to win. If not in eighteen sixty four, then surely in eighteen sixty five. And he thinks that the post war years are probably going to require you know different characteristics than than Lincoln has. Um, but there, there there is no question. There is also just some ambition, and um, and this is why I think that. Scholars sort of blame him in the 1840s and 50s for the ambition that he exhibits in 1864. But he does, by the by, when it all blows up and his candidacy ends in February of 64, he writes a letter to Lincoln and says, look, I would perfectly understand if you want me out. To which Lincoln responds, I'm not quoting here, (laughs) but Lincoln responds basically, no, I don't want you out. You're doing good work as as Treasury Secretary, keep on. And he, he keeps on until the end of June 64, when he finally resigns. And not long thereafter, again, bears mentioning, he basically spends the fall of 64 on the campaign trail to ensure that Abraham Lincoln is elected president again. So, yes, ambition, but also willing when when the nomination has gone another direction
0: to fall in line and to do his party duty. Seward and Stanton and Chase and who knows how many you have yet to write about all went through the same thing. I want that job. That man is a hick. He's not me. And in the end, he's the man. He's the man. Yeah. Um,
1: and, And after Lincoln's death, Chase stump, I mean, readily admits that. I mean, right. he, I mean, he hangs a a portrait of Lincoln kind of in the place of honor in his home, and he, um, you know, hangs immediately underneath it a, a framed copy of the letter by which um, Lincoln nominates him to be Chief Justice. I mean, and these are talismanic objects for him.
0: Okay. And, and with he, any other figure, we would be talking about the Chief Justiceship of the United States as the pinnacle of his career, and with Chase in some there's so much that's happened that it's a denouement, yes after the ju- the death of chief Just- Chief Justice roger b it's pronounced t a n e y I say tawny, but other people say Taney. Um... well, my father sailed on the u s Coast Guard cutter Roger B tawny during the second World War, and he always pronounced it tawny oh well, that gives me incidentally tawny is Chief Justice when Dred Scott is decided and the ship on which my father sailed has now been denamed. It's now in the Baltimore Harbor, and they've taken off the Roger <laughs> no, it, now it's a number. Anyway, I was raised calling it Tawny. Tawny dies in 1860. Well, however his name is pronounced, we don't have to trouble ourselves with it again, because he's dead in 1864. And the New York Herald warns Lincoln not <laughs> to nominate Chase. The position of Chief Justice requires a lawyer of profound acquirements. Chases but a dabbler in legal lore. Now, that's foolish, but still, they said it. It requires a man of calm judgment and unbiased opinions chases a partisan. Now, there, they're right. They, they, they have a point. And Lincoln nominates him all the same. Why? He, do, he does.
1: Um, well, a number of reasons. I mean, he, um, one, to circle back, um, black rights. You know, he knew that issues about black rights, he didn't know exactly what the issues would be, but he knew those issues were going to come before the court in the next, you know, five, ten years, and he knew that Chase would be on the right side of those issues. Um, Second, the finances. He knew that there would be challenges to this complex set of federal laws and rules that had been passed during the Civil War, that those would come before the court. And as he put it, uh, like, the day after the nomination, Uh, He said, you know, Chase would surely be on the right side of those issues because he would merely be defending his own handiwork. Um, And third, political pressure. There's a wonderful, not long after the nomination, um, a Washington insider writes to a friend that Lincoln um, bears a grudge as faithfully as any Christian. Um, in other words, he, he hadn't completely forgiven Chase for his ambition and his, his difficulty um, as Treasury Secretary, but according to this insider, the pressure from senators to nominate Chase became very intense. Nice. It became essentially clear that if Lincoln nominated anyone other than Chase, the nomination would go down in flames. Um, which um, he obviously didn't want to do, so he nominates Chase. So there, it's, there are a variety of explanations.
0: All right. But that's interesting that Chase... I mean, honestly, Walter, it, he's not always a likable man. As, <laughs> well, he's easier to admire than to like, really. Yes. But by this point, he has friends in Washington. He does. Particu- he's worked with Congress, he's worked with the senators, and they're going to insist on backing him up. Correct. So there's a capacity There's a capacity for friendship. Yes. All right. So, as Chief Justice, he presides over the first impeachment trial of President Andrew Johnson. And yet, for all of that, you write, I'm quoting you again, when law professors list the great justices, they sometimes include Tawney, but they do not include Chase. He served as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for almost nine years before he dies in 1873. Again, in his case, it's almost a denouement. But what do we, what do we grasp? What do we, what do we want to hold on to about his time as Chief Justice?
1: Um, well, you know, there are a number of important cases. But for me, you know, to, to sort of create a, a unity, I, the, the most interesting may be the kind of black rights cases. So one of the cases that comes to mind uh, involves a young woman in Maryland Uh, The day after slavery ends in Maryland, her mother signs a contract binding this girl, she's 12 at the time, uh, to serve as her former master's apprentice until she comes of age. And the payments from the master are going to go to the mother until the final payment goes to her upon the end of her apprenticeship.
0: So slavery is abolished, and the day afterward she sells her daughter.
1: Correct. And um, Chase, Kind of, in those days, uh, in addition to sitting together as a Supreme Court, justices went around as circuit justices and Maryland is part of his circuit. Uh, He goes to Baltimore specially to hear this case and um, it's presented to him, uh, the the master is actually in the courtroom, I I say master because effectively he's still her master. Um, and Chase asks him, well, are you going to present a case? And he said, no, I'm not going to hire a lawyer and spend all the money. I think he maybe saw the handwriting on the wall. But in any case, the next day, Chase issues a short opinion saying, look, this you know apprenticeship system that has been devised in Maryland and affects not only this girl but thousands of others, this is just slavery by another name. And it's contrary to the 13th Amendment, which had been enacted abolishing slavery. And so, you know, her her contract is null and void. She's free. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's one of a number of cases in which, how to put it, you can see in Chief Justice Chase, the very anti-slavery lawyer who lost all those cases, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. I mean, I'm sure There's a
0: single golden thread through his whole life. And it's uh, black rights, human rights. Human rights,
1: yeah. And, And on the subject of human rights, he also, as chief justice, one of the very last cases that he hears is, has to do with a woman from Illinois who was suing the state saying, look, I've passed the bar exam, I'm completely qualified, but the state is denying me my law license because I'm a woman. Right. Um, and that's an eight to one decision. Eight justices of the Supreme Court side with Illinois and against this poor woman and say, well, obviously, she's a woman. She can't be a lawyer. And indeed, one newspaper mocks her saying, well, this proves why women should never be lawyers because she should have known that she was going to lose. But Chase says, well, no. The the Constitution has just been amended by the 14th Amendment, which guarantees citizens, um, you know, provides people a federal guarantee against states denying them their, their, Federal rights. One of those rights is the right to pursue a profession. Uh, you know, he, he, in essence, is the sole justice prepared to stand up for women's rights. Hmm.
0: He's visiting New York City in the spring of 1873. He suffers a stroke. He dies soon afterwards. He's only 65. Um, you write on the day after Chase's death, the New York Tribune observed that to Chase, quote, you're quoting the New York Tribune, more than any other man belongs the credit of making the anti-slavery feeling what it had never been before, a power in politics. It had been the sentiment of philanthropists. He made it the inspiration of a great party, close quote. So whatever it was that made Lincoln Lincoln, the warmth, the common touch, Perhaps the political calculation where he holds back. Chase didn't have this. But Chase is indispensable all the same. Yes. No, Roughly? I, yeah.
1: No, I, I think that that's a quote, that's Horace Greeley who, who had known Chase, you know, for, you know, at that point 30 years, initially not a fan of Chase um, because he viewed Chase as a Democrat and he was a Whig. Um, but I think he's got it quite right, you know, and that that word philanthropist had a much more negative sense in the 19th century than it has today. I mean, today we think of the folks who, you know, give, give, them, give, them money for give the money for, r- for rooms these like uni- this, yes. for mm. rooms like this, but in the 19th century, a philanthropist was, uh, you know, a somewhat eccentric person who was trying to change the world but would never get there. Mm. And mm. that's what, that's what, abolition was before Chase and and some others, But, but Chase, more than anyone else,
0: comes along. All right, Walter, you. When we were friends, I knew a brilliant young lawyer who had already done very well in life and who then served at the SEC and then went off, I mean to be very blunt about it, You had a very remunerative career and also, frankly, quite a glamorous career. You were jetting all around Asia. And after 20 years in the law, you end up writing history. Incidentally, history of the most challenging kind. You're spending hours and days and weeks in archives and going from one collection of letters to another and reading thousands of documents. I mean, compared with the energy and excitement of flying from Hong Kong to Tokyo and doing big deals, what on earth? I'm, I'm. Everyone who now knows more about salmon chase than he otherwise would have and understands some important piece of American history is grateful to you. But what were you thinking? <laughs> so the, it, it actually in some
1: sense starts in Hong Kong. One evening in our very small flat in Hong Kong, I was reading a book a book about American history. I mean I was always reading, even when I was at, at the busiest parts of my legal career. Um and I put it down, I finished it, I put it down, and I said, ah, oh, even I could do better. Ah, uh, even I could do better. And then it was as if there was a, a mic, you know, kind of back up behind me, or sorry, speaker back up behind me saying, so star, if you think that, do it. Write a book. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, I, I was very. You mean that
0: came to mind? That, that, was, ca- that it, it, wasn't your lovely wife. That doesn't sound like your wife. No, no, she it's not. She's <laughs> not declamatory like that. No, oh.
1: no, no. This was not my wife, nor my children, who at that time were very young. All right. Um, I, it was, you know, I mean, my priest says it was, you know, the, the Almighty speaking to me. I don't know if it was, or, but it was. Uh,
0: He's a good agent to have, by the way.
1: <laughs> He's a, right, a good, good man to have in your corner. Um, but I started thinking about that. And by the time I, we left Washington and returned to Washington, where I started another very busy job, I, I had determined that I was going to write a book. And I, I had settled on who it was going to be. It was going to be a biography of John Jay.
0: And so, throughout this legal career, it's not as if secretly would have been. I mean, you never mentioned anything like this to me, but you weren't secretly feeling thwarted. No, you weren't saying to yourself, oh, another decade of making money, and finally I can quit and get to what I really love." It wasn't that at all. No, no, you not, loved the law. You I, had a I, wonderful time. I,
1: I, no, and, and as you said, it, it, I, you know, I had a, a you know really interesting career in Washington and, and Hong Kong and the rest of Asia. Um, no, I, I, I loved being a lawyer. Um, I just. Well, you know, after I got started, I found this, this great quote by Benjamin Franklin, which I think sort of summed it up. You know, if you would not be forgotten, as soon as you are dead and rotten,
0: Do either, something worth the writing or read... No, sorry, I screwed up. Go ahead. Sorry. It's okay.
1: Uh, either um, do something worth writing about or write something worth, worth the reading. Worth reading about. Right, right. Um, and I, you know, by that point in my career, you know when you work as a lawyer, you work on a lot of important things and you write you write big things you know a, a contract you know might run a couple hundred pages um but once it's done, it's done no one's gonna read it <laughs> whereas here i mean we're surrounded here today by by books written by folks who are no longer among the living but but their books are still here you know um you know we you know we uh, and maybe not my books but but some books last a very long time
0: how many times have you said to yourself oh i wish i were back at the law sometimes oh you do
1: i I, sometimes and i and i've occasionally had you know little legal challenges that have arisen in in uh in in my in connection with other things and but um but I, i i i do love what i do and i'm you know i i don't ever envisage you know, stopping researching and writing books. I envisage doing this as as long as I can. I can do it.
0: All right. Last couple of questions here. Seward, Stanton, Chase. What have you learned about Lincoln in writing about these men who who, who were indispensable to him? Absolutely.
1: So, a, a number of things. In the Chase book, I really focused for the first time on how late Lincoln is to the party, not just the Republican party. Um, you know, Lincoln basically only admits to being a Republican when there's no Whig party left in Illinois to claim to be a part of, um, but to anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lincoln says later in his life that he always hated slavery, and I believe him, but he was very quiet about his hatred for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but on, the, on the positive side, um, his ability not just to recruit these people to his cabinet, but to keep them. You know, I mean... And you know, to get
0: the best out of them. And to get the best out Sam of them. Salmon Chase has a remarkable career before he meets Lincoln, but what he does afterwards is staggering.
1: Right, and, 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 and to, with a combination of, of letting them, you know, giving them very substantial discretion to run their own departments, but also holding to himself certain key decisions and persuading them that, that that's really the right way to do things. You know, relatively early, um, Seward, who actually had been even a, ahead of, of anyone for the Republican nomination in 1860, writes to his wife, Lincoln is the best of us. Mm. And, and no one would have thought in early 1860 that mm. he would be writing that in early 1861. Mm-hmm. Two more questions.
0: Americans of our generation. Alas, it's different now, but Americans of our generation were brought up, taught in school that Lincoln and members of that generation who eliminated slavery, fought the Civil War and preserved the Union were great men. Great women as well, but substantially great men. Do they stand up?
1: In my view, they do. I I, I wouldn't have spent 15 years of my life (laughs) researching and writing about these people unless you know, I, I thought they deserved to um, be, you know, held out as role models. Um,
0: they merit your time and our attention. That's the last question. At Stanford, I, actually I should know the figures here at Dartmouth, I don't, but at Stanford, your alma mater, computer science is the biggest major now. History is way down the tables. Indeed.
1: And, and the so, number of history majors has declined here at Dartmouth as well.
0: Right. Um, so, what do you say to a Dartmouth undergraduate or a Stanford undergraduate or any young American at all, why does the history of this country matter to them?
1: We wouldn't be here if these folks, you know, or, or it, it would be very different. Um, You know, if you imagine a world in which um, the South had, if not won the Civil War, if they'd been a stalemate, um, well, it's not just that slavery would have persisted in the American South for a long time, but you wouldn't have had a United States to play the role that it did in the First and Second World Wars. So, it's not just that the history of the United States would be different without Lincoln and, and his generation. The history of the world, would be dramatically different, but for this handful of of
0: American leaders. Walter Starr, author most recently of Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's Vital Rival. Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, today from the campus of Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, I'm Peter Robinson. That Andrew Roberts. <laughs> Salmon and P. Chase beats George the Third any day.